This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Thursday, the 20th day of July, 2023. Today marks the 54th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins landed on the moon 54 years ago today. The first of six missions that landed on the moon. Um, There would have been seven, (laughs) but Apollo 13 had to turn back because of the mechanical difficulties on the spacecraft, and that's a story for another time. If you have not seen Ron Howard's masterful movie, Starring Tom Hanks and uh, and oh Gary Sinise and oh uh, uh, Kevin Bacon, what a great cast! Um, if you have not watched Apollo thirteen, you know I was going to say go to Blockbuster and pick it up for the weekend. Uh, <laughs> there's dating myself. Um, we were talking about that the other day. I stopped by uh, Papa Murphy's Pizza and picked up pizza for us and. Uh, that used to be right next door to Hollywood Video, and I remember on many occasions stopping by, renting a movie, and then getting a pizza to take home on a Friday night to go rent, uh, watch a movie and, and eat pizza. Um, you young people don't understand the absolute marvel it was to rent a movie and and take it home. Um, now everything's streaming and stuff. So, on your streaming service or online rental or whatever, I don't know who has Apollo 13, but find it and watch it if you have not watched it. Great movie. Really well done. Told the story very, very well of Apollo 13, but we're talking about Apollo 11. Um, I said Neil Armstrong and Mike Collins have passed away, sadly. Buzz Aldrin is the only member of that crew still alive. He is 93 years old. Um, He's kind of turned into an eccentric old coot. He's he's fun to... I follow him on Twitter, and he posts some some funny stuff. Uh, Interesting life story. Um, Kind of an an admirable guy. He was, I guess, of the the Gemini astronauts and... and, uh, all three of these astronauts came out of the Gemini program. They were not part of the original Mercury program. They were the second class of astronauts. And and the Gemini program was, of course, a two-person spacecraft. And they were practicing orbital rendezvous and docking because they had to know how to do rendezvous and docking in order to make the Apollo mission work. So the the Gemini program served two func- two functions. It served as a trainer for rendezvous and docking, and it served as a platform to test the long-term 
living in space long term in the you know I think the longest Gemini mission was like three weeks and that's two guys in a phone booth with no showers and uh, and no bathroom you know uh, it's uh, some of the stories they tell are very funny um, but absolutely no privacy no nothing you're you're basically in two chairs side by side for three weeks with uh, so they, they 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 always talk about the first thing they wanted to do when they got on the ground was take a shower and I have no doubt and uh, it wasn't until Skylab in the in the early mid 70s that they had any sort of bathing facility in space um, so because that was you know another the first another long term uh, I, I I think we should be highly disappointed that we allowed Skylab to deorbit and burn up. We should have the the plans were of course to you know but the space shuttle was delayed. The plans were to you know maintain it and use it long term, but by the time its orbit was decaying, we didn't have the capacity to get it to a higher orbit and and stabilize it. Um, which just a few years later we would have been able to do with the space shuttle, but uh, yeah, I, I I still there's there's a lot about the space program that saddens me. As I was talking about last Monday, about that we had the technology to industrialize space fifty years ago, and we could have done a lot. And, of course, all of the science fiction stories that I was reading in the 70s and 80s were, we just, you know, we were moving out into the solar system and, and, and asteroid mining and colonies on the moon and orbital colonies and, and you know, solar power satellites and all this stuff that, that everybody was talking about you know, 50 years ago that that we just didn't do and uh, it's one of those imagine if i mean we went we went to the moon 50 years ago we went six times and after 1973 we have not been back other than a few probes unmanned probes imagine if christopher columbus had discovered america and there'd been a few more voyages to the american shores and then the Europeans never came back. It just it boggles the mind. But that's what we've done with with space in a lot of ways. I mean, we haven't, you know, the International Space Station, space shuttle, everything we've done. We have not gone beyond Earth's orbit in over fifty years in manned spaceflight. Um, and that's a sad thing for me because uh, I've always been an enthusiast on space travel and uh, I grow, comes from growing up watching Star Trek, I imagine. So today is the 54th anniversary of the Apollo 11. This is Squirrel Chatter, <laughs> a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and anything else I want to talk about. 
We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the audio podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts. You are sure to find something worth listening to. All right, what we got coming up today, we have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, and it's Thursday. That means it's Theology Thursday. We are in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We are in Chapter 16 of Good Works. Um, taking a little bit longer on this chapter because there's so many scriptural references so it slows us down. We've got two paragraphs left. We've got six and seven in chapter 16. We might get through them both today. We might not. No promises. All right. Let us begin as is our, our practice. Let us begin as is our practice with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, time for our daily readings from the life of Christ by John MacArthur. Our devotional today is entitled, Our Responsibility Clarified. Whoever, teaches, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 19b. Dr. MacArthur writes, The New Testament presents a paradox concerning God's law. On one hand, it is abolished. On the other, responsibilities to it remain. Regarding Jews and Gentiles, Paul writes that Christ is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. With the church's emergence, the dividing wall of civil ordinances disappeared. The ceremonial law also is terminated. While Christ was on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark 15, 38. With Jesus' death, the Old Testament sacrifices became invalid and unnecessary. In a certain sense, God's moral law seems no longer binding on his children. Romans 10.4, Romans 6.12-15, Galatians 5.17-18. and 18. Paul harmonizes this notion when he speaks of being without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.21. 
In Christ, believers are anything but without the law. Whereas his law is totally different from the Old Testament moral law with its penalties for disobedience, it is not different at all from the righteous standards which that law taught. Whenever we look at the moral law with humility and a sincere desire to obey, the law will invariably point us to Jesus Christ, as was always its ultimate intention. Ask yourself, what benefits do the teaching of the law continue to deposit in the life of the believer? If not for its guidance and its setting of boundaries, where would our human nature choose to live and operate? And the, the law is very important in the life of the believer. It's not the basis for our salvation, but it is the basis for our understanding of morality and right from wrong, how to behave, how to conduct our lives. Very important in the life of the believer. Uh, good word from Dr. MacArthur this morning. All right, we are in, it's Theology Thursday, and we are in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We are looking at chapter 16 of Good Works. So I said there are seven paragraphs. We have looked at five of them in detail so far. I'm going to read all five of those, and then we will pick up with uh, paragraph six and begin to look at it in detail this morning. And if we get to paragraph seven, awesome. If we don't get to paragraph seven, well, you know what we'll be doing next Thursday. <laughs> all right, let, let me read the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 16 of Good Works, paragraph one. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. Paragraph 2. These good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, and by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. Paragraph 3. Their ability to do good works is not all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, Besides the graces they have already received, there is necessary an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them and to will and to do for his good pleasure. Yet they are not bound to perform any duty unless upon a specific motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. Paragraph 4. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate super and to do more than God requires, as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. Paragraph 5. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God, by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them... We can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty, 
and are unprofitable servants. And because they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's punishment. That brings us to paragraph 6, which is where we are this morning. Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. And even as believers, our works don't measure up. Um, But even though our works don't measure up, because we are in Christ, God desires to reward us for the good works that we attempt. (laughs) And it's not that people don't do good. It's just that the good... And, and I, I mean, believers, it's not that believers don't do good, but that the good is marred and corrupted and far from perfect. But because we are in Christ, our works are acceptable in him. And so the faithful believer striving to be obedient to God is pleasing to God. And for that, he is rewarded. So that's what this paragraph is saying. Let's look at that first clause in difference. Yet notwithstanding the persons of a believer as being acceptable through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. So we are accepted because we are in Christ, not because of any merit that we ourselves possess. And because we are accepted and because we are in Christ, our good works are also accepted in Christ. Um, this is this flies in the face of antinomianism. There is a antinomianism is is against the law. Um, Greek phrase meaning against the law, and antinomianism, while surprisingly often, often paired with legalism, antinomianism has has two forms. You know, there's a legalistic antinomianism, and then there is a a licentious antinomianism. And antinomianism just denies, since we can't be good enough, why try, kind of, I know that's heavily oversimplified, but there is a, you know, we're not under the law, we're under grace, which is true. But you can't overemphasize that to the fact that, you know, we are to do good works. We are to obey God. And our good works done in faith are acceptable to God. Now, that's one of those things because I know my good works are so imperfect. Um, That's what, you know, the paragraph uh, four, I think it was talking about, and we, we looked at this in in, uh, in great detail when we looked at paragraph 4, but I want to go back and point out to it. It says, 
those who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life, I mean, the best of us, okay, are so far from being able to super arrogate, meaning that we can't do more than God requires. Indeed, the, the, the best of us are far from being able to exceed God's requirements. And that's what it says, and to do more than God requires, as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. So even the very best of us, doing the best that we are possibly able to do, fall far short of God's perfect requirements. That having been said in chapter 4, when we get to chapter 6, we see that notwithstanding the fact that our works are far from perfect, if we are in Christ, our works are acceptable to God in Christ. Ephesians 1.5, we read, By predestining us to adoption through Jesus Christ to him, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we are adopted as sons in through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of God the Father. That we, he has chosen us and he is pleased to have chosen us. Not because we're great, but because he has chosen us and decided to work through us. 1 Peter 1.5 says that who, the believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the, those who are saved by God, their striving to be obedient to God is pleasing to God. The next clause says, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight, which is true. We, we you know, we fall short every day, and, and, and if your life is not a life of constant repentance, you're not self-aware enough of your own sinfulness. We are constantly in sin, which means we need to be constantly going before the throne of grace to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. Not because we are losing, constantly losing and regaining our salvation, but because we desire to be cleansed and we desire to live a life that is pleasing to God. So so that is the the great desire of the believer to live the life that's pleasing to God. And so even though we're not unblameable and unreprovable, there is blame, there is reproof in God's sight that we are deserving of. So not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. A true and sincere attempt by the believer to live a life of obedience, recognizing his own faults, recognizing the accompanying weaknesses and imperfections, um, which honestly should curtail any pride. You know, the best I can do falls far short of God's requirements. Still go back to Isaiah 
64, all our righteousness is filthy rags. So my good works are totally imperfect because there's not a part of my good works that is perfect. Every part of them is imperfect. Every part of them is defiled by my flesh. So every part of any good works I do falls short. But despite that, the sincere attempt to obey God is pleasing to God. Now, there will come a day, and I'm so looking forward to it, when in the presence of God, the, the, the presence of sin will be removed, and then we will be able to perfectly obey him. And that's going to be glorious. Um, and I, I think we're going to be all be amazed to, to see how imperfect perfect we are. We have an intellectual knowledge of it, and we have an experiential knowledge of it. But I don't think we're able to grasp the totalitarity of it, of just how sinful we are. Um, and, and, you know, don't lose sight of who you are. You are a human being. You are a fallen human being. And you are rife with sin. Um, and, and you know, that's that was, you know, well, the famous, <laughs> I'm using, I'm once again using the What's Wrong With You People mug. <laughs> Didn't choose that deliberately. That was just what I grabbed out of the cabinet this morning. But in that quote, when 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 R.C. Sproul famously looked at the audience and said, "What's wrong with you people?" He continues and says, "The problem with the church today is we've forgotten who God is, and we've forgotten who we are. We've lost sight of the holiness of God, and we've lost sight of the sinfulness of man, and we need to always remember that." That everything we have it comes from the grace of God. So even the, the quote-unquote holy person who lives that best possible life, and, I, and I'm not using that in the Joel Osteen sense. I'm using that in the, the sense of, of obedience. The most obedient, faithful Christian should also be the most humble because the most obedient, faithful Christian is going to be somebody who has spent so much time in the Word that he knows how sinful he is. And that's just... So we are accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections, but God is pleased to accept and reward our sincere attempts to obey Him and please Him. Because, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God, but with faith... Our desire is to please God, and he knows our desire. And, and, you know, he uses our works in his providence to accomplish his will on earth. And at the same time, he rewards us. I, I, I liken it to the, you know, three-year-old's crayon drawing that the parent proudly puts on the fridge. 
it's not a Rembrandt. It's not a Monet. It's not any kind of masterpiece at all. But because it's your kid, you're proud of it. And and that's the way often I think God is with our good works. We want to draw, you know, we want to paint a Rembrandt. And we end up drawing a, you know, horribly misfigured green horse with Crayola crayons. But God looks at that and he's pleased. Um, because we are his children. Because we are in Christ. And he rewards us for it. That's grace, folks. That's just amazing grace. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This this parable of the the slaves and the and the talents that that's told in the scriptures is a picture of God rewarding his faithful servants. Uh, verse 23 of that same chapter says, His master said to him, Well done and good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So there were, you know, remember there were three servants. Two of them did good with the gifts that their master had given them and were able to return to him again. The third did nothing with what he was given and he was the one that was punished. We have been given much. Do something with it. And and God will reward that. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unrighteous so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and continuing to minister to the saints. You know, the, the, God has good work for you to do and as you do it, however imperfectly, he sees it, he is pleased, and he will reward you. So that is paragraph 6, and it's just now 8 o'clock. Let's go ahead and look at paragraph 7. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and to others, Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive the grace from God. And yet their neglect for them is more sinful and displeasing to God. What about the good things unbelievers do. Have you ever thought about that? You know, because there are a lot of unbelievers who do what we would consider good things. There are unbelievers that, you know, support homeless shelters, for example. There are unbelievers who support myriad charities that do good works. There are, you know, unbelievers who, you know, are faithful police officers or you know government officials or businessmen who do a lot to make 
our lives and our nation better and, and the human condition better, not just here in America, but elsewhere. You know, unregenerate men, you know, spend time working in underdeveloped countries, digging wells and helping them to advance their agriculture. What about these good works? These are undeniably good things to do. You know, think of Doctors Without Borders going to underdeveloped countries to bring medical care. That's a good thing. You know, they're not all believers. <laughs> so what about the good works done by unbelievers? It says the works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter, the matter of them, the thing being done, they may be things which God commands. You know, love thy neighbor as yourself. You're doing some good for, for your neighbor, you know. Um, you know, you know the, the widow on the street who just lost her husband, the unbeliever next door decides to mow her lawn every week when he mows his. You know, takes him an extra hour, and he's doing a good thing for the person next door. He's not a believer. That's a good thing he's doing, but because, you know, it, it's, it's a work done by an unregenerate man, it's something that's good, it's something which God commands, love your neighbors yourself, it's of good use to himself and to others. You know, it, 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 he, it benefits him because he does not have an unsightly lawn next to his own house, and it benefits the widow next door because somebody's mowing her lawn which her husband used to do, but he has passed away. Good things. No denying it's good things. But what about it? Second Kings 10.30 says, And Yahweh said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So Jehu was actually, his family was blessed because of their obedience to God. Again, this is, as we're learning in our study of Deuteronomy, this is a temporal and conditional reward. It, it's, it's a response to the condition, the fact that, that Jehu had done what was right in the sight of the Lord, but the results are temporal. They take place here and now in this world, although you know, a couple thousand years, a few thousand years ago, but still, you know, the here and now, not in heaven in eternity, but on earth in time. First Kings twenty-one verses twenty-seven and twenty-nine. Now it happened when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently, so he was mourning before God. And God says in verse 29, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his day, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's day. Ahab was not a believer. Ahab was unsaved. But God rewarded the fact that Ahab humbled himself before God, but that was a temporal reward, not an eternal reward. And that's why the, the next clause says, yet because they proceed not from a heart 
purified by faith. These, these good works of unregenerate men are done not out of a heart that's been purified by faith in Christ because they're unbelievers, right? Genesis 4, 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. There's a lot of speculation about why God rejected Cain's offering. And I think a lot of it misses the mark. There are a lot of people saying, you know, Abel brought a blood sacrifice, he brought an animal, Cain brought produce of the ground, which was not an acceptable sacrifice. Except as we look through the laws of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there were often sacrifices of produce of the ground. There were there were drink offerings, there were grain offerings, there was all sorts of offerings that were not bloody animals. Um, now the bloody animals were offered as atoning sacrifices, but it doesn't say why, you know, you're supposed to bring the first fruits of your harvest. And if you're a herdsman, that would be animals. If you are a, a farmer, that would be produce. So to say that that was why Cain's offering was rejected is, I think, reading in, reading between the lines. We don't know why they were bringing an offering, and we don't know what they knew. This is something that we often, you know, don't think about. Genesis 1 to 11 is a very short passage of Scripture in the long run. And it covers thousands of years. It starts with creation, then and then right after creation, we got the fall, then you have Cain and Abel, and then you have, you know, you're almost you're right into the flood. You know, you got the generations and, and there's a few details here and there. And then you have Noah being told to build the ark. Well, it was some 1,600 years between creation and the flood. So we're not given a lot of details. And one thing we're not told is what instruction had God given to Adam and Eve as to how he was to be worshipped. Those instructions are not given to us. We don't know what they knew. We don't know what the command was about how God was to be worshipped and what offerings were to be offered. You know, were they under a Levitical type system? We don't know. We're not told. So to say that it was what Cain offered his sacrifice is reading into the text something that isn't there. In Genesis 4-5, it says, God had no regard for Cain and his offering. And the reason was, faith. And we see that in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So think about that. All right. He doesn't say it was what Cain offered. It was the fact that what Cain offered was offered in unbelief. 
it was by faith that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Now, some people say, well, Abel believed God, so he brought what God said. Cain didn't believe God, so he just brought whatever he wanted. That's reading between the lines again. You're making assumptions. It wasn't what was sacrificed. It was the heart attitude of the sacrificer. It wasn't necessarily. Now, we don't know. It, that could be the case. I'm not saying it isn't. But I'm saying we're not told. It was Abel's faith that caused his sacrifice to be accepted. It was Cain's lack of faith that caused his sacrifice to be rejected. And without faith, this is Hebrews uh, 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So, it was Cain's lack of faith, is what we're told in Hebrews 11. You know, we don't know. The, the lack of faith could have caused him to offer the wrong sacrifice. Or he could have been offering a perfectly acceptable sacrifice in unbelief. Because, you know, if you do not know Christ... You could drop the biggest check into the offering plate week after week after week. And guess what? No reward for that. None at all. Yeah. Because you can't buy your way into heaven. You can't please God. If you are not a believer, you can't please God by donating millions to the church. Just doesn't happen. Doesn't mean we won't take the money and do stuff do good with it, but you won't get an eternal reward for it. But if you live in faith and your offering is meager, but it's what you can afford to give, you'll have rewards in heaven. Because he is a rewarder of those who believe in him and believe that he rewards those who seek him. So these things that are done don't proceed from a heart purified by faith, and they're not done, nor are they done, in a right manner according to the word. 1 Corinthians 13.1 If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, you're just making noise. It's not done out of faith, and it's not done according to the word. You're, you're not doing anything pleasing to God. The first thing is faith. Repent and believe the gospel. If you are outside of Christ, there is nothing you can do that's pleasing to God. The only way to be pleasing to God is through faith in Jesus Christ, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his perfect life, his atoning death, his burial and resurrection. That's the basis of your salvation. And if you don't have faith in that, there's nothing you can do. Not a single thing to please God. So, nor to a right end the glory of God. And this is a key thing. The unbeliever does not do 
whatever good works he does for the glory of God. It's a self-aggrandizement. Um, I said, you know, helping the little old lady across the street for an unbeliever is a sinful act because it's not done in faith and it's not done for the glory of God. Yeah. It might be done, you know, most of the time stuff like that's done either for a desire to feel good. I did something good today so I can feel good about myself. A self-esteem motive. Or it's done for the, the, the view of others. Yeah. Look at what a nice guy that is. You know, isn't Bob a great guy? He always helps old ladies across the street. He feeds the homeless. He, you know, he he, paint, he you know, spends his time on Saturday volunteering to paint over graffiti. Whatever Bob does. But Bob isn't a believer. So he's doing it to be seen by men. Or he's doing it to make himself feel better. You know, assuage the guilt that he rightfully feels for being a sinful human. Or a combination thereof. It's not done for the glory of God. It's not done out of faith, and it's not done for the glory of God. Therefore, it's not acceptable to God. Matthew 6, 2 and 5. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And then verse 5. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. The only reward for doing good things to be seen by men is the regard that men give you. <laughs> and I think we all know how fickle that can be. The next clause says, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive the grace from God. So the, the things that are done in unbelief are sinful. They cannot please God because they're not done in faith. They're not done for the glory of God. And they can't make a person worthy of receiving God's grace. The only way to receive God's grace is through faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do that, then your good works are pleasing to God. But if you don't do that, they're not. They're sinful. Meaning, you're actually accruing judgment to yourself. The, the things done in unbelief are on the day of judgment among the things that are going to be judged, found wanting, and ultimately will lead to your condemnation. Amos 5, 21-22 I hate, I reject your feasts, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. In unbelief, 
all the ritual and all the sacrifice and all the religion even done, you know, he's talking here about things that he commanded. You know, how Israel was to worship. They were supposed to have feasts. They were supposed to have solemn assemblies. They were supposed to offer up burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings. These are all commanded in the law. And he's saying here, if it's done in unbelief, I don't accept it. It doesn't count. In fact, it counts against you. Isn't that interesting? Romans 9.16 So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. So it, it, we're not saved on the basis of what we do. Titus 3.5 He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness. <laughs> All our righteousness is filthy rags. But according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the things that are done in unbelief are sinful and they cannot please God and they can't make a person worthy of God's grace. And yet their neglect for them is more sinful and displeasing to God. Job 21, 14 and 15. They say to God, depart from us, we do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we profit if we entreat him? Because of their unbelief and their rejection of God, that's the, the, the main problem. That's the big deal. And because of the unbeliever's rejection and neglect of God, the, the, the fact that things are not done in faith and they are not done for the glory of God so it just accrues more punishment to them. It's sinful, and it's displeasing to God. Matthew 25, 41 through 43, the, the sheep and goat judgment. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Um, and, and this is, again, the, the basis for salvation is not these good works, but the fact that, you know, it's talking about me. It's talking about God. It's talking about, you know, Jesus is talking about how you treated me. And so he's saying, you did nothing for me because everything you did was done without faith and was not done for the glory of God. Yeah. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. All right. That is the end of that chapter of the 1689. We will be in, that was 16, right? Scroll back up. See, what chapter number was that? I know the topic was of good works. I think it was 16. Yes, 16 of good works. So next Thursday, we will start chapter 17. And off the top of my head, I do not know what chapter 17's topic is. So we will look that over next week. Um, so that'll be next Thursday. We'll start chapter 17 
All right, the Apostles' Creed. Let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the collect for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that we may receive what we ask. Teach us by your Holy Spirit to ask only those things that are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you in the same Spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Collect for Guidance. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now the colic for the unrepentant. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Thursday, the 20th day of July. Um, just a couple of things I'm looking at for next Monday's Monday meanderings. Um, the news of the corruption in the Biden White House and even in the, the Biden, in the Obama White House when, when Biden was vice president. We've got all of the things surrounding the 2024 election and the the indictments against Donald Trump and, and everything that's going on there, that's definitely a topic for discussion. Then there's just the, the scary advances in AI, something we need to be looking at. And then I don't know if you heard about the, the U.S. soldier that fled to North Korea this week. That's probably something we might be talking about on Monday. These are just some of the things I'm keeping an eye on. So, hey, have a great Thursday. I wish you the best of days. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Channel. Take care. God bless you. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster. 